1: So that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi,
2: everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Margaret Hillenbrand, who's Associate Professor of Modern Chinese Literature and Culture at the University of Oxford, and she'll be talking about her new book, Negative Exposures, Knowing What Not to Know in Contemporary China, which was published in 2020 this year by Duke University Press. Secrecy and the concealment of information are pretty perennial subjects of concern for people living in or researching China. For reasons that span from casual curiosity about the PRC state's vast censorship apparatus to much more life or death situations, as we saw recently in Wuhan at the dawn of our now virally transformed age. Few things are as secret in today's China as the country's recent history, yet, while the state's predictably shadowy role in concealing dark chapters of the past receives plenty of attention, the way that secrecy is itself structured and sustained on a wider societal level isn't widely understood, beyond general allusions to self-censorship and the like. Margaret Hillenbrand's negative exposures therefore breaks some pretty amazing new ground by showing some of the key ways in which what she calls public secrecy actually operates in today's China. Focusing on a category of sensitive photographic images from several key junctures of China's 20th century past and the various ways that they've been repurposed by artists writers, filmmakers, and other manipulators of images, Hillenbrand delineates the subtle contours of what is permissible and what's impermissible to know in today's China. The book's highly original and at times haunting exploration of the ghostly afterlives that photos of past events lead in art, online, inside and outside China, together builds up a nuanced but also forceful picture of secrecy's reign in the PRC. At a time when knowing or not knowing things is as important as ever. This book therefore shows us that it is often neither government fiat nor convenient forgetting that opens up lacunae in China's past, but a much more complex culture of the cryptic with a vast number of participants. But uh, the author herself is here with me to shed some light on some of these obscurities. So I'll say, Margaret Hillenbrand, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Ed. It's really great to have the opportunity to talk about my book with you today.
2: Well, thanks for coming on uh, to discuss what I think is yeah pretty uh, pertinent and uh, and yeah I, I, I should say very compelling uh, piece of work um, but before we do discuss it uh, i 'll perhaps begin by asking you something of uh, your background and uh, how you came to be interested in in the image and the secret and where those things fit into your wider sort of research interests.
0: Okay, well, I first began studying China and the Chinese language when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge University. Uh, At that time, most of the courses I did were on the pre-modern period and classical Chinese, actually. But after graduating, I spent several years in Taiwan and also Japan, and I became really fascinated by the contemporary literature of those two countries and also the deep resonances between them. And that laid the groundwork for my PhD work, which was a comparative study of Japanese and Taiwanese fiction in the post-war period, which I did at the University of Oxford. But after my doctorate, I made a kind of double switch in my research focus. So I moved back to the study of the PRC and away from literary studies towards visual culture. And I think the trigger for this was when I got my first teaching job at SOAS about 15 years ago. And I was asked to teach a film course, a field I'd never worked on before. And that was a really galvanizing experience. It introduced me in short order to an astonishing new domain of a cultural production, really one in which some of the most inventive cultural figures in China were working. And around about that time, and I guess because of this sudden immersion in cinema, I realised that I didn't want to work within a delimited disciplinary field anymore, be that literary studies, film studies, art history, whatever. I became very interested in trying to develop an approach to studying salient questions using varied, eclectic source materials that crossed many aesthetic mediums. And that was quite a big change for me.
2: Mm. And how about this uh, idea of the secret and the kind of, um, I guess, yeah, darker chapters perhaps of of history um, and and the the negative exposures project? How did that uh, come about?
0: Well, I guess the idea for the project began a long time ago now, 10 years or so, when I was looking into the cultural representation of the Nanjing Massacre in China. And at that time, I was really intrigued by China's quasi-schizophrenic attitude to Japan, which seesaws between japanophobia and almost rage, sort of animated japanophilia and the hatred of japan reaches its low point i guess in the remembrance of the nanjing massacre and as i got deeper into that topic it became clear that it was the grotesque photographic record of the atrocities which was driving the commemorative discourse the infamous images of raped men and decapitated women that we've all seen and can't unsee But I also started noticing something else, that these images of atrocity aren't simply reproduced, they're remediated in some way. They're tinkered with so that they become more than just a photograph. So they appear on book jackets in stylized form, they're meticulously restaged in feature films, they're fashioned into museum exhibits, they're turned into sculptures. And once I become aware of these repurposed photographs, I began seeing them everywhere. Particularly in cultural forms which represent troubled, traumatic, taboo, secret events in modern Chinese history, from the Cultural Revolution to the Tiananmen Square crackdown. And the more I looked, the more I found, until I'd actually accumulated a bulging archive of these works, which I now call photo forms.
2: Right, right. And that uh, leads us pretty neatly on to diving into the actual content of the book itself. So um, you have a preface uh, to the book as a whole, which um, gives us a bit of insight into a um, quite different set of these uh, photo forms uh, in, in the uh, form of um, 64 images of, of the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre and surrounding events um, by a, a, a photographer called Xu Yong. Um, but uh, that kind of I guess, gives the book a kind of looping quality in that that's where we get to uh, towards the end of the book. So I'll perhaps uh, move beyond that to start with into the actual introduction, um, and especially in view of the fact that you've already uh, raised this idea of the photo form, which is this tremendous kind of uh, theoretical, I guess, uh, idea that that underpins the book as a whole and the kind of material that you analyse. Could you say a bit more about that, uh, this idea of the photo form, um, what is it? Um, and is it a unique thing in China? Uh, could you sort of yeah, flesh that out for us a bit, please?
0: Sure. Well, the first thing I began to notice about these photo forms was that they appear in multiple genres. So in documentary film, in cartoons, in social media posts, graphic art, video games, performance art, tattoos... But I also began noticing something else. It wasn't just any old photograph that made the step change into a photo form. As you know, the last couple of decades have seen a real explosion of research on Chinese photography, photojournalism, studio portraiture, propaganda. But the photographs that have been remediated, they belong to a small and quite specific subset of images. They're either full-blown iconic or they possess an unusually high recognition quotient. They're the kind of images which can retain their immediate recognizability, even if they're twisted wildly out of shape. And as you, as you say, they're by no means specific to China. And a non-Chinese example I mention is the image of the gate Auschwitz with its dreadful motto, Arbeit macht frei. And I think that photograph could be repurposed in matchsticks and viewers would still recognize its dark genesis.
2: Mm. So in terms of uh, the kind of um, events out of which these photo forms have uh, arisen, I mean, the the cases that uh, you cite uh, in the book or that you focus on in the book and into which we'll uh, delve a little further in a bit are uh, the Nanjing Massacre, as you mentioned, this um, earlier event, uh, then uh, the Cultural Revolution, and lots of um, kind of uh, historical, um, I guess, circumstances surrounding the, that, and then subsequently the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. Um, but it, it, the kind of uh, attitude, I guess, of the Chinese authorities and of China as a political entity uh, to these kinds of events um, is one which you sum up as being a place where public secrecy basically reigns as kind of uh, the common practice, um, and you, it, to the point where you call China a cryptocracy, Um, So could you explain something of what you understand by this term or what you mean by this term, cryptocracy, and what public secrecy is?
0: Sure. Well, first of all, the term cryptocracy, generally speaking, that refers to a society in which you get hidden, unelected forces exercising power behind the scenes. But I try to use the term much more expansively to describe secrecy as a full-blown mode of governance in China. So this is the tight control on information, the surveillance regime of wraparound CCTV, the new social credit system, the use of biometrics for social profiling. But it also refers to the depth and breadth of state secrets. So China's hidden overseas aid empire, its secret Bitcoin mines, its covert nuclear program, its use of cross-border rendition, the number of secret executions it carries out, all this sort of thing. But I think more importantly, I use the term cryptocracy to highlight how these sort of secret forms of secrecy also coexist with open, even spectacular forms of secrecy. That's the idea of secrecy as a, I guess, a state power play. And we see this, for example, when booksellers are snatched from the street in broad daylight. Actions like that communicate the message that secrecy is unchallengeable. Now, of course, all states do this, but I think China stands out because both the chokehold on information, And the use of secrecy as a muscle flex—they operate at full tilt, and they create a climate in which public secrecy will also flourish.
2: Mm. And uh, I mean that—I think, yeah, it resonates to anyone who pays attention to uh, yeah, contemporary China right up to the very, very present day. Which is, I think, what makes this book in many ways so compelling. In that its focus is on uh, events which span, which take us back to you know, almost a century ago in the case of Nanjing, um, and yet, you know, speak to things which are so resonantly contemporary, as I say. Um, But obviously, none of these sort of secret things and this uh, regime of even however spectacularly it might often be performed, this regime of secrecy is actually particularly easy to research. So I mean, how do you how do you go about approaching the secret as a subject of, uh, of kind of inquiry?
0: Well, secrecy, as as you're suggesting, is always really hard to study, which I guess is why secrecy studies has only really quite recently taken off within the Euro-American Academy. And obviously, this kind of problem steps up in a hardcore cryptocratic environment, such as we find in China. So the researcher who wants to study secrecy in China has to deal with sealed archives with disappeared dissidents, with all the stooges who patrol the Chinese web. But public secrecy is even harder to study, I think, because exposure, which is our most obvious tool for prizing open the clandestine, it simply doesn't work on things that everyone knows already. Think of Watergate and WikiLeaks and all the civil unrest which they signally failed to ignite. What I tried to show in my book is so that it is actually possible to study secrecy and that aesthetic practice aesthetic media are an illuminating way to do this i think artworks can tell us as much about secrecy as declassified documents as leaked files they're sites in which our relationship with the unsayable can find some kind of voice
2: mm, mm. I, I i think uh, yeah that that makes a lot of sense as a as a way into things which uh, yeah as you say are are difficult to contend with when uh, exposition and revelation are not particularly effective weapons i mean we might think too of of the current um us administration's approach to you know saying the quiet part out loud or uh, doing things which if they'd been whispered in a briefing room somewhere between you know conspirators would be a huge scandal but when they're just announced on tv uh, are you know sort of much much more difficult for anyone to deal with and um, despite being uh scandalous and often um pretty yeah horrific in their consequences um but uh, as, as regards china i mean i think uh as i mentioned briefly in the intro there uh there's often perceived to be a sort of binary between uh state da- state top-down censorship and the control of information that is from a kind of uh yeah a high elevation of authority and then um you know, the, the effects that that has in terms of people's own uh, self-policing or self-governance of, of, of information. Um, but how do you see the relationship uh, in, in, in kind of the context of some of this visual imagery uh, that you use as your research materials? How do you see this relationship between the kind of top-down imposition of a regime of, of, of secrets, of a cryptocratic kind of uh, order, and more vernacular forms of of keeping or, or, or holding secrets?
0: That's a very good question. I think to answer it, it's helpful to go back to the official historiography of modern China. Anyone who studied 20th century Chinese history is all too well aware that the landscape of that past is glitched. It's cratered. It's haunted by episodes that haven't secured full and fitting commemoration despite their huge impact. One example I don't talk about in my book is, of course, the Great Famine of 1959 to 61. Now, I'm not trying to suggest for a second here that these strategies of silencing, I call them the protocols of disavowal in my book, they're by no means specific to China. We see them in the way that British schools prefer to teach Henry VIII and his six wives and the darker past of imperialist conquest. We see them in the fact that many Germans somehow managed to remain cognitively unaware of the final solution that was being pursued all around them. But what's really interesting about disavowal in China is that scholars have tended to agree that it's state-led, that it's top-down, as you said. It's the state that silenced the past, and it's done so apparently, via the twin strategies of censorship and amnesia. So according to this standard narrative, China's hypervigilant state blocks or deletes references to bad histories using its censorship apparatus, and the result is a blanket amnesia. People simply forget the things they're not supposed to remember. But to me, this is a deeply flawed argument. I think it's problematic because it, it accords virtually all power to the state and none to the people. I'm not trying to suggest here that censorship doesn't suppress memory. Of course it does. But at the core of the events I talk about in my book lies the simply unforgettable. And for people who've been scorched by its fear, its violence, its shame, true oblivion can only be wishful thinking. So rather than being a nation of amnesiacs, I think China's divided between those people who can't fully forget but who stay mostly silent and younger generations who've learnt very little about the events that have scorched their elders and left them with PTSD and so don't really have anything much to as it were unremember.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. And I I mean I guess the transition uh, the the kind of transmission I should say um uh, mechanism that one would normally assume would occur between generations uh, if if these sorts of events were to be you know more widely um discussed and kind of part of a uh yeah a, a more um open and, and discursive uh sharing of information would be uh oral kind of um uh, you know spoken utterances you know uh, whether it's uh, parents or older relatives telling their their, their younger relatives or, or teachers telling students or other kinds of um uh, intergenerational communication that one would assume would be verbal um so yeah what can i can i talk about that for a second actually of course please
0: please that's something i think that's a really interesting point and one that has really not been touched on sufficiently in the scholarship on on, on chinese historiography and it's many lacunae as you referred to them earlier as i think one of the key problems with the censorship plus amnesia argument is that it presumes that speaking about the past is always a public act it's always going to be performed in policeable spaces. But as you're suggesting, it, it, there's also the, 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 the private space, the, the domestic space, intimate spaces, which offer rich potential for passing on memories. But in China today, there is so much ignorance amongst the later born about taboo pasts, so that we have to assume that this kind of intergenerational transmission is only happening in very limited ways. Now, of course, you could argue that older people might be censoring themselves, I'm sure some of them are, but to suggest this is always the case is to assume that people always wish to speak. And um, I, I think, to me, it seems just as likely that many survivors, witnesses and perpetrators of violent histories actively prefer to avoid discussion of their past because of trauma, complicity, guilt. And a few of them may even welcome censorship as it liberates them from the moral injunction to come to a reckoning with their personal histories. So I guess that's the main premise of my book, really, that we need to try and challenge or at least nuance this censorship equals amnesia argument by bringing the people back in. Silence Mm. on a grand scale requires broad compliance it's it's conspiratorial
2: Mm. but as well as challenging that kind of assumed uh yeah the 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 assumption that people speak if they can and and that that's the that's the primary impulse it also challenges the idea that i guess the verbal is the main uh yeah kind of mechanism for communicating these kinds of pasts and and for passing on You know, uh, information or insights or 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 feelings or you know, sort of affective responses to some of these um, historical kind of uh, yeah scorching episodes, as you say. Um, So, what is it that uh, kind of gives the optical or visual a particular place within a a cryptocratic uh, society like China?
0: Well, I think visual culture, by its very nature, always offers opportunities for encryption. It relies on hints and codes, even more than the spoken word with its illusions and its metaphors. And this capacity is particularly important in suppressive environments for the simple reason that the picture is much harder to search for. is much harder to censor than the more algorithmic friendly word. And I think photo forms are particularly skillful in this sense. For a start, when you make a photo form, you physically mirror the act of hiding because it's a repurposed object in which a well-known photograph is cloaked in some kind of new material, be that paint, ink, mural, celluloid, human skin, whatever. And as part of this process of cloaking, you get a visual field which becomes saturated with clues that the viewer has to decipher. And that process, too, mimics the experience of being initiated into a secret and then because photo forms tend to circulate below the radar, viewing them then creates an, an in-group, a secret collective. So we get a counter move against the cryptocracy. But I think most importantly, the fame of the original image means that a photo form can always remain recognisable. So even when it's mutated, it can still dodge the sensors who patrol the the, the great firewall. So a bit like the public secret itself These images are both hidden and open. They're both encrypted and clear as daylight. And one of the points I try to make in the book is that grappling with public secrets isn't about suddenly seeing something that was previously hidden, it's about different ways of looking, to paraphrase John Berger. Photo forms defamiliarize scenes and situations that have atrophied into overfamiliarity. They force us to look directly at the elephant in the room, the naked emperor, the thing we're pretending collectively not to know. And that sensory shock is much harder to achieve with the word, with the text.
2: Mm, mm, I mean, I think that that it's uh, a kind of. Really stunning thing to realize that that there is this class of thing that exists, as you say, th- these photo forms. Because once, uh, as you just explained uh, very lucidly, but also as is elaborated in the book, once you sort of understand what it is, you see it. You do see it everywhere, and it's kind of something that is so recognizable, despite <laughs> despite the fact that, at least you know, in my uh, in, in my case, and I, I would uh, hazard to guess other readers, you've never thought of sort of such a such a category of thing before. Um, I mean how was it that you kind of arrived at the conception of of, of, of yeah these, the, the photo form, the repurposed or kind of um, yeah, yeah, adapted uh, image like this? Was it something that you came to from uh, just examining lots and lots of different photos or was it was it conversations with the people who actually do the, do the repurposing or, or how did you arrive at this idea?
0: Well, it was mainly the latter, actually, because during my work on on, on this book, I, I hit a real roadblock. I could tell that all these repurposed photographs that I kept finding were doing something. I knew they must be performing some kind of role in China's processing of its past, but I, I really couldn't work out what it was. I was stuck for a long time testing out different hypotheses and finding them all wanting. In particular, I tried for ages to interpret photoformers through the prism of memory, which I guess is the most self-evident one. I kept trying to think about these photo forms as timely reminders of episodes that should never be forgotten. But this approach kept stalling because why would makers of culture repurpose familiar images, images already lodged in memory, if their objective was to remind us of the past. And more importantly, as I've already suggested, is forgetfulness really the issue here anyway? Can someone who's experienced the intensity of the Cultural Revolution ever really forget it? How does a red-hot event like that ever fade? So it was around about this time that I conducted an interview with the Chinese cartoonist Badiol Cao. You might have seen his work on Twitter and other venues. He's a really devastatingly mordant satirist. And his black and red, Political cartoons lampoon everything from the coronavirus to official graft in China. And he's drawn many cartoons about the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989. And I interviewed him about those cartoons, and he made a comment which triggered a real eureka moment for me. Talking about the crackdown, he said, I'm going to quote directly from him here. He said, Although the authorities now tightly control information about June 4th, this is nothing more than the emperor's new clothes. Middle-aged people all have a tacit knowledge of what happened. It's a secret closely kept by both sides. Or beizao shēn in Chinese. And those final words, it's a secret closely kept by both sides. They gave me a clue, a last about what these photo forms might really be about. Because when silence is conspiratorial, we find ourselves in the intriguing domain of the public secret.
2: Mm, mm. Well, I think uh, yeah, we'll uh, now get on to sort of exploring some of the the operation of that and and how uh, that yeah uh, tremendous uh, I guess uh, yeah Tao derived insights uh, helped you to kind of understand these these uh, three um, episodes that I've mentioned: the uh, Nanjing Cultural Revolution and, and uh, the Tiananmen protests. Um, so into Chapter One, um, where you talk about uh, Nanjing in particular. I mean. Uh, you point out that this is in some ways distinct uh, from the other two key uh, junctures because it's long enough ago that uh, it's uh, what you, well, you, deter- you define as an ex-secret. So for one thing, it's something that, you know, has been uh, shrouded by a kind of uh, regime of secrecy that has come out into the open in some form. But I guess it's also something where, unlike, you know, uh, in the case of middle-aged people that uh, Badi Otao was talking about, it's not something that is necessarily sort of Known firsthand and hasn't quite, uh, you know, had that purchase on, on, on living people who are, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of participating in the in the keeping of the secret. So, I mean, what's the significance of it as something that uh, is an ex-secret? I mean, what does that what does that mean uh, in the context of of Nanjing and of some of these images that you mentioned a little earlier?
0: Well, images of the Nanjing atrocities are so freely displayed in China today that it's easy to forget that not so very long ago, they were actually state secrets. They were sequestered artefacts. They were as secret as the massacre itself, in fact, which was barely mentioned in public or in the media during Mao Zedong's long reign. And that was essentially because the massacre was associated with the Kuomintang capital at Nanjing and because... No communist superheroes charged in to rescue the victims. It was an embarrassing episode that had to be glossed over. It's not until the mid-1990s, actually, and as part of a campaign to drum up patriotism after the Tiananmen crackdown, that you get the massacre archive beginning to be disseminated very energetically in China. Mm.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off
2: i see so i mean the the kind of reasons for it um having been kept secret yeah as you say have particular uh kind of uh, grounding in the yeah in the civil war and in the kind of uh record of 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 the communists which was so key to i guess sustaining um mao's china and, and and the government at that time um but it came out as you say and and Uh, suddenly, you know, (laughs) to a point where now these things are ubiquitous and and have attained the kind of status of of, of almost a logo, like I believe you put it um, in many of these images. But why, why was it that it came out when it did, in particular?
0: Well, I think there was a really felt need in the aftermath of the Tiananmen crackdown to reactivate a sense of national patriotism, and Tiananmen provoked that 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 need for a new state narrative, a narrative that could cohere around the notion of patriotism. And that's where we get the archive emerging from the shadows and, and into the limelight in, in an extraordinary vault fast. And this happened, first of all, via commemorative albums and then later in popular histories, exhibitionary culture, websites, films, paintings, reportage, graphic art, video gaming. And what I try and do in this chapter is look at how these photoforms have spread, this once classified archive of atrocity right across Chinese society. And they've done so by repurposing the same small set of ultra-violent images. These are images of decapitation, of violated women, bayoneting, live burial, killing fields strewn with corpses... And also the two Japanese soldiers who took part in the infamous killing contest, and as you just mentioned, I try to argue that these photo forms have created a codified visual language, a set of logos which are designed to elicit a sort of knee jerk nationalistic response. I see the images, mm. so I feel patriotic
2: right so so i mean in terms of the transition there between something that was kept secret, something that was obscured to something that is now almost, you know, well, grossly out in the open. Is it the case that this is actually a more kind of open state of affairs? Or is it the case that actually, you know, just as many possibilities and interpretations are foreclosed by this particularly graphic and, as you say, sort of patriotism oriented use of the images, um, as, as was kind of, you know, limited by Earlier uh, hiding of them.
0: Mm. Well, I think there's a lot of public secrecy surrounding this this new propaganda of victimhood, which participants in that patriotic discourse have to pretend not to notice. So, namely, this actually that these are photographs of atrocity, which for the most part are actually perpetrator images. They're war pornography. And as such, to create photo forms based on this archive is simultaneously to mandate a very disturbing kind of public secret. So it's common sense, it's common knowledge that Japanese aggressors took these images, often for their own violent pleasure. So to use them as the basis for a long-term propaganda campaign, often targeted at children, is ethically dubious in the extreme. But then to query the morals of this discourse becomes behaviorally unpatriotic. So what I was really astonished to find when I was researching this chapter is that there is no substantive pushback online or anywhere else against this tide of grotesque imagery in China. And then to, to t- touch on the final point you raised, it leaves the, the victims of the massacre who were caught in these postures of extreme anonymous degradation. It leaves their personal trauma. Confined forever to to silence,
2: mm, right? And and yeah, I mean, you, you kind of um, illustrate some of the ways that these images find uh, new form uh, by showing some really yeah quite shocking um, children's art or, or history projects uh, in in kind of uh, you know, the high school students who've kind of made up these collages uh which you know includes all of the sort of uh, creative and fun things that uh, children's colleges would but interspersed with these absolutely horrific uh yeah images that, that as you say come from this kind of fairly narrow repertoire of uh, particularly shocking i guess um uh, lo- lo- yeah logos of the atrocity um uh, you also i mean uh, give some attention uh, into to the japanese side of of this and and the way that uh, some of this imagery has surfaced in Japan too. Um, And given your sort of, uh, you know, background there that you mentioned when you were talking a bit about how how you came uh, to be interested in these sort of subjects, I mean, what is the uh, kind of role of Japan as a, you know, I guess, a a real existing uh, state and a a country where things are happening now in this, uh, yeah, otherwise quite rigid um, kind of uh, order of, of, of photographic images?
0: Well, I think it's quite important to acknowledge here that Japan has also engaged in in long term sustained secrecy about the Nanjing Massacre. Obviously, we know about the hardcore hawkish elements in Japanese society who persist in pursuing policies of denial about the the events. I mean that that they're, they're, they're full blown deniers, in fact, who have a, a a a very quite actually lucrative publication industry centered around the the rebuttal and an aggressive deconstruction of the core images which have shaped the Chinese uh, discourse of patriotism around the massacre. What I found really disturbing about this is that you get these, these two discourses, the discourse of denial in Japan and the discourse of, of strident patriotism in China. They chase each other's tails in what is essentially a zero-sum game. There's there's no sense in which either either of these discourses will ever yield ground. And so you just get an endless situation of impasse between the two. Neither will, will give an inch. And in the and as part of that process, victimhood is, is 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 as I suggested earlier, is 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 stuck in aspic. There's no there's no progression forwards in terms of understanding what this event really meant for the people who endured it.
2: Mm, mm, right. And yeah, I, I think uh, that kind of comes out because the photos in so many ways are yeah harnessed to uh, very state driven uh, agendas in all cases and and sort of i guess via them that those using them and engaging with them are uh, dragged into this yeah, kind of very you know yeah state and patriotism dominated um situation which yeah, is, is is as zip say as yeah as, almost as obscuring or concealing as certain previously more secretive ways of treating these images. Um, But in chapters two and three, uh, we move on kind of uh, through time, I guess, into um, the cultural revolution and an altogether different, I think, order of uh, of photographic images, um, particularly uh, family photos uh, in the first instance and kind of these kind of intimate portraits of uh, of family groups, which were, um, I guess, uh, increasingly popular during, during the Cultural Revolution, um, they too uh, have were images which for a period were c- concealed along with all kinds of other pictorial records of the Cultural Revolution era. Um, so when was it that uh, they started to sort of resurface? Was it around a similar time to the time that the, that the Nanjing Massacre secret started to be kind of revealed a bit?
0: Actually, yes. They're, these images, as you've already suggested, also have their own secret history because they were targeted during Red Guard house raids when the homes of people labelled as class enemies were ransacked in search of incriminating bourgeois items and these sorts of of. Family portraits most certainly qualified as as items in that category. But in the mid-1980s, so as you suggest, just uh, more or less exactly the same time as the Nanjing Massacre archive began to get briskly circulated, um, a writer called Liu Xinwu began to draw these family portraits out of hiding. He actually published a really pioneering book called My Private Photograph Album. This book, for the first time in Chinese print media history, I think, coupled photos with written text in a really sustained way. And what Leo did here was provide, if you like, backstories for what the images the family portraits hint at but don't really say outright about loss, about parting, about the fragility and the resilience of the family bond. Now, this book made quite a big splash in literary circles. And from there, it went on to inspire the enormously popular magazine, Old Photographs, which was launched about a decade later in 1996. And that magazine actually invited readers to submit their own family photo texts which were then published alongside much more innocuous articles about old Shanghai fashions and foodstuffs and furniture and so on. And these readers who had no literary training, they had no connections, they had no reputation, they used family photo texts to share secrets about their Cultural Revolution experience effectively under the radar. So in this sense, the magazine was a kind of analogue precursor of Instagram in which people who had no connection with each other at all in real life could use networked images to share their private memories.
2: And and what sort of experiences and memories were they transmitting kind of with these images, and and how was that running up against the, uh, I guess, more formal um, approach to this at the, at a at a sort of state or national level
0: mm. well the the photo texts which feature family photographs run the gamut of quite cozy jolly even stories about family togetherness all the way down to narratives of extreme trauma narratives about family members who have been killed family members who've disappeared. Family members who've taken their own lives as the result of of the Cultural Revolution and and, and the, the politics of the day. So I think precisely because the these family photographs do run along a, a continuum of experience, they were able to be published without really drawing a huge amount of attention to themselves.
2: Mm, mm. And I guess I mean even the highlighting of the family, uh, you know, from a period in history where i guess traditional institutions including perhaps the family itself uh, were under, under fairly sustained uh, attack from uh, you know kind of state reorganizatory uh, i guess impulse um is in itself an expression of something something different something distinct from uh, what, what the, the kind of um, narrative of the time so i guess it has a life there both uh, in the afterlife of some of these events and and the and indeed pushes against things that were going on during that period itself to some extent um you have a second chapter also on the cultural revolution uh, era which um points at a, a, a kind of more i guess point more directly in some respects at a, a especially violent uh, series of episodes during that time that is the um activities of red guards including those uh, who were active in in schools um and there's um, a particular teacher Bian uh, bien jong who uh, you kind of uh, highlight uh, who was a, a teacher at a, a prestigious Beijing girls' school. Um, what does her photographic uh, kind of I- image and, and um, the way it's been treated uh, kind of tell us about, yeah, this this uh, arguably even more sensitive and more kind of um, agra- like a actively conclu- a concealed dimension to the cultural revolutionary past?
0: Mm, well, <laughs> Bien's portrait, which is a, a, a lovely, gentle, photograph of her with a smiling face that once upon a time that was a treasured family keepsake but it's actually experienced an extraordinary afterlife in more recent years I guess once again following the path from secrecy to publicness that I've been talking about already so after Bien was killed her husband Wang Jingyao concealed that portrait behind a false fronted bookcase in their apartment and it lay there hidden for decades just mourned privately by her closest family members. But then in the year 2000, everything begins to change. The photograph began to gain very significant exposure, firstly via a website called Chinese Holocaust Memorial, set up from the University of Chicago, which recorded the names and told the stories of people who died during the Cultural Revolution. Now, unsurprising, that that website was quickly blocked in China but not before it had grabbed the attention of one of the country's leading independent documentarists, Hu And in 2006, he made a really impassioned film about Bien's death, which featured that same portrait repeatedly. And although his film too was swiftly banned, it became the catalyst for even more intensive remediation of Bien's portrait. And these photo forms together create a network of revelation. And to get To the second part of your question, the aim of it has been to draw the portrait of Bien out of hiding in order to apply what I think is a kind of steady lateral pressure on a much bigger cover up. And this is the major secret of who actually killed this teacher in a school which educated the daughters of the Chinese Communist Party's most elite leaders, the so-called Red Aristocracy. So at the school at the time of Bien's death were the daughters of Liu Shaoqi, Deng Xiaoping, Mao Zedong. In fact, half the school's intake in 1965 were the offspring of leading cadres. Historians who've researched Bien's murder now sort of broadly agree that the truth of who killed her is never going to be known. But beyond this who done it, I think lies the threat that her case poses to a much larger secret. And this is the widely felt but entirely unutterable sense that certain members of the CCP progeny, including some who enjoy inherited positions of extraordinary wealth and power and privilege today, may well have committed acts of violence during the Cultural Revolution.
2: Mm, mm. And, and there's one particular instance of that that you, that you highlight there. Who, who is that, the, the daughter of, uh, of one particular prominent CCP member?
0: Yes, that's right, Song Bin Bin. Song Bin Bin first came to fame. In that summer of 1966, when she was photographed with Mao Zedong wearing a red armband, and that photograph in many ways seemed to signal the launching of the Cultural Revolution. And and some people have argued even to, to endorse a certain level of violence towards teachers, to educational professionals more generally. And what we see over the course of of the of the twenty tens and right up to twenty fourteen is a very slow process, whereby that generation of red guards for whom Song Bin acts as a kind of figurehead, came to a process of contrition about their actions back then. Now, of course, not everyone is on board with that contrition. So Wang Jingyao, the the husband of Bian Yun, he has rejected entirely the apologies of. Red Guards such as Song Bin Bin. But I think it's very interesting that even if we dispute the authenticity of their apologies, nonetheless, the very fact that Red Guards have expressed contrition in public, it kind of forces a crack in the ice and a chink in the carapace of the public secrecy that surrounds the most taboo aspect of the Red Guard legacy today, namely as I suggested earlier, what's the role of 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 the highest placed people today? What was their role in in the violence back then?
2: Mm. And you trace the kind of in, entangled, I guess, afterlives and and legacies and repurposings of images of both uh, Song bin Bin and um, uh, Bien uh, in the kind of parallel and how they uh, kind of exist, you know, in separate spaces at times, but also grotesquely collide, uh, for example, in this uh, um, anthology kind of thing or a kind of almanac of, of uh, former pupils of the school, right? They're kind of there on facing pages, the iconic image of um Win-bin with Mao and then Teacher Bien as well on on the on the facing page, just a kind of, um, yeah, a, a, a tremendously forensic, I think, uh, tracing of how these things have kind of woven in between each other and and, and as you say, the kind of, lateral pressure that the one puts on on the other to, to an extent um, but i i mean throughout all of the, the the chapters thus far that you've therefore kind of constructed a really uh i guess um compelling and, and and yeah as i said to me entirely novel way of looking at uh, at some of this imagery um and it's therefore incredibly helpful that we get uh, in the final chapter to possibly the most iconic image of all uh and certainly um one of the most known images uh, coming out of China, I would say, uh, to, many, to many outside China, that is of uh, of Tank Man or the, the kind of uh, yeah the, the man with his uh, his shopping bag standing in front of the column of tanks uh, during the Tiananmen Square protest. Um, so uh, it, it's a, it's a great thing in a sense that you leave that till to last, I think, because um, it's uh, it, it's something that we can appraise in a totally new light, having read what's gone before. Um, but so could you talk a bit about? uh tank man and his sort of storied career um mostly outside china it should be said but uh what what kind of um uh, what, what what benefits does seeing his image as a, yeah, as a photo form um have <laughs>
0: Well, as you say, this is a the, the, the most taboo icon. It's a famously suppressed image, so much so that it's apparently been forgotten by the citizens of China, despite, as you mentioned, its endless afterlives elsewhere from fried chicken adverts to a Simpsons parody. Now, when I first began working on Timeline, I just sort of accepted this shibboleth. And I, I kind of assumed it would be pointless, really, to search for Chinese photo forms of this image. But in about 2016, I became really interested in augmented reality art. And I began wondering if its possibilities for below-the-radar mischief-making might be being exploited by Chinese artists who were dealing with taboo topics. So on a whim, I searched for Tank Man, an augmented reality art, and I found a fascinating work by a diasporic collective called Four Gentlemen, and it enables users to download geomapping software onto a smartphone and then superimpose Tankman's image anywhere and everywhere, including in central Beijing itself, of course, a stunning metaphor for the secret that hides in plain sight. So I started looking for other photo forms of Tankman and I found large numbers of them quickly all of them encrypted in some way. And what they show us, what's what's special, to get back to the second part of your question, about Tank Man as an instance of the public secret, is that the image exemplifies how public secrecy has carved open a kind of surreptitious intergenerational split in China. So it divides Chinese people who remember that image from China's central television broadcasts from younger people who have no awareness of the photograph and the crushed protest which it it, it it symbolizes and that secret tension between those in the know and those not is then heightened by the fact that this schism often occurs in nuclear families so this is a this is actually absurd as much as it's sinister and i began noticing that photo forms of Tank man often rely on on dark comedy on gallows humor on a mixture of haunting and laughter to get a, a handle on the sort of the, the, the grim preposterousness of the public secrecy around June 4th.
2: Mm. and I mean, uh, at the very start of the book, as I mentioned, as well as in this chapter, there's some uh, incredibly uh, interesting examples that you bring out, uh, including, uh, I should say, the, the illustrations in the book itself that, that kind of provide um yeah, visual counterpart to a lot of what you discuss all the way through. Um, but uh, could you talk a bit more about uh, the work of um, both Xu Yong, who you bring up right at the start, and also then uh, Badiot Tao as well, who you've already mentioned? Uh, what have they done with the imagery of, uh, of Tank Man himself, but also kind of associated imagery of the uh, Tiananmen Square events of, of June
0: 1989? Mm. Well, I think the main thing that these these artists, not just the two you mentioned, but all the artists who've worked with the Tank Man image have to do is be incredibly nimble and crafty in the way that they work with that iconic image in order to get around censorship. So there are the key components of the image, so the man, obviously the tanks, they have to keep shape-shifting in order to elude the censors. And as they do so in different ways, they also demand a certain wit and agility on the part of their audiences as well um and i think actually the the, the really significant thing about about tank man and the reason why it, it is it becomes a sort of point of gravitation for such a range of different artists is that it constitutes china's most restive public secret for the simple reason that it's it's so conspicuous but i think it may also be a metaphor for all the other things that are unsayable in china today so the shadow population of migrant workers who build the cities but have no real rights there, the corruption of the elite class. Tankman's frightening for the party because his skeleton is perched at the top of China's pyramid of public secrets, although maybe House of Cards would be a better term. And it shows that public secrecy is a really fragile, brittle thing. It's only as robust as the shared consensus to stay quiet. And as soon as that consensus starts to fracture, the whole edifice can collapse. So artists like Xu Yong, like Badio Sao, who've worked with this image, often deconstruct it, really almost quite violently, in order to, to create a version of the, of the icon, which can, can slip past and, and, and get to the audiences who are waiting on the key vive to, to receive it.
2: Mm. But in terms of the, the role of those audiences who, as you say, have been kind of uh, brought in in an almost conspiratorial fashion, because some of the enjoyment of these uh, these works of art that, that use some of these repurposed images, I guess, comes from feeling a satisfaction that you've you've got it, you've understood how this thing has been uh transposed and moved and and you're kind of in on the uh the the joke if it is even a joke or you know whatever the the absurd um but it, it, you know if uh, as you say if there's a sort of house of cards like quality to whatever it is that that uh, sort of props up tank man or, or keeps him hidden from large parts of the population i mean is there a sort of a role for a for a public who understand that imagery to actually have any kind of interface with the 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 massive edifice of uh of of crypt- the cryptocratic state i mean do, are these people operating uh in the space outside china which is where tank man is actually you know recognized and known largely
0: i think that's a really important question and um, i should say and be quite candid be quite frank that i don't really harbor any illusions about what photoforms might really achieve in terms of changing the status quo whether in China itself or via the kind of, of extraterritorial things that you were just mentioning. And now I guess this is less possible than ever. Under Xi Jinping, the space for protest has of course narrowed further. And nowadays even the, the very encrypted critique of, of, of some of the tank man photo forms, the critique that, that can produce that kind of that moment of of illumination that, that, that audiences might might quite savour. Even that kind of encrypted critique is going to struggle to get out there nowadays. But even in these tense, even in these stringent times, I think photo forms can create temporarily temporary allegiances between their spectators. They have the potential to create very brief moments in which the unsayable can be spoken. And it's worth mentioning here that photo forms are quite often designed to be viewed not just in public. But actually, in groups, And as such, for example, the Shuyong's work is, is exhibited in, in ways that in, encourage precisely this kind of group spectatorship. And as such, they bring into being these brief coalitions of like-minded people, people who can experiment together, if only for the briefest of moments, with the freedom that comes from being honest about things that they know very well but would prefer normally not to discuss. And I think that these small acts of speech can offer people who live in in suppressive environments a, a small measure of, of comfort and relief.
2: Well, and I think it's the light that you shed on those groups and those constituencies, and indeed the creative processes that underlie the creation of of, of, of images which bring them together. That that really is what helps us to understand the the, the contours and the, the delineations of this um, cryptocratic order, uh, as you so. Uh, kind of, um, uh, yeah, elaborately uh, e- explained to us. So um, that's fantastic, um, Margaret. I really am very grateful for all of your kind of explorations of this book today. And it's by no means uh, the uh, the whole of it. I mean, there's a, a great deal more all the way through the book, uh, also including uh, information about the uh, or kind of insights into the states' responses, the states' repurposing of images and and attempts to control images, including buying up. Uh, the rights to things like Tank Man imagery, absurdly, uh, but also uh, in the in the conclusion, the kind of um, I guess a sort of afterward reflective afterward, uh, looking into uh, the, the state's um, historic doctoring of, of photos and how that's been used by artists too. Um, but I would encourage listeners to to pick up the book and and kind of delve into the uh, great depths and richness of many things that we have not had time to discuss in detail today. Um, But Margaret, um, in the meantime, thanks so much for uh, giving us your time today. Um, Before before we let you go, uh, finally, I will just ask you uh, what it is that has followed from this uh, phenomenal project and what it is you're working on at the moment.
0: Well, um, I'm not far off finishing a new book about the relationship between precarity and cultural form in contemporary China. Um, The premise for this project is that China is well, essentially a blind spot within the huge academic literature, which has built up around the theme of fragile life and fragile labour in the years since the millennium. I think this is a really peculiar absence. China's a society, as you know, in which precarious experience is endemic. And the pain of it's all the sharper because the security blanket that was provided for some people, at least by socialism, has now been rolled back or snatched away completely. So in the book, what I try to do is install Chinese experience at the heart of our global understanding of precarity. And I do this by exploring how a lost sense of security has become, if you like, the crucible for new forms of culture in China. I look at how subaltern people, of course, are striving to express themselves culturally, but I also see precarity as something transversal. Is a daily reality for construction workers, but also for avant-garde artists and digital creatives. It's a peril, a felt peril for almost everyone in a nation where a large minority of the population, China's migrant workforce, 300 million strong, lives without rights and protection, lives in a zone pretty close to what Giorgio Agamben calls a state of exception. So the existence of these migrant workers i try to argue in the project turns precarity into a kind of atmospheric condition basically is it my turn next and my book's about exploring how this condition is generating friction between different elements in chinese society but within a china which is now rejected class as a category of political action and now is all about the harmonious society well
2: fantastic that sounds a tremendous kind of uh, counterweight to, I guess, what blooms in many people's minds as much today as ever is a kind of monolithic, powerful, uh, you know, strong kind of thrusting China. That, that yeah. you know, if, what what lies uh, within, and, and and in many, uh, I guess, overlooked and unseen um, uh, slices of society, which, as you say, were, I guess, yeah, historically focused on as as being the vanguard class of a of a more egalitarian state. Uh, yeah, is is Indeed. much more complex. Um, when when can we uh expect to see that book appear not, not to put the pressure on or anything
0: um well I, i'm going to finish it within the next 12 months and thereafter i guess it's in the in the lap of the gods <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh fantastic uh, it'll be great to uh go to read that one too when it does uh appear when the gods see fit um, um thank but, uh, you it, thank you so much anyway margaret um, thank you uh, thank you very much
0: indeed likewise thank you very much
2: uh, it's my pleasure and listeners uh thanks to you too for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast on the New Books Network and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.